Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome. Uh, you're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855kHz on your AM dial. Thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, highlighting issues around homelessness. Uh, my name's Bill, and for the next hour, my guests will be sharing their journey from active alcoholism. Uh, I'd like to welcome Lisa and John to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi. Hi, Bill. Uh, hi, Bill. Um, as members of Alcoholics Anonymous, they'll share their experience with alcoholism and how AA has helped them. Um, so usually we start talking about childhood and how, how, it, how it all develops. So, Lisa, do you want to talk about growing up and, and when you first felt yeah, sort of like different and when you first felt something helped you not feel different? <laughs> sure, sure. I, my experience of childhood was being quite a just fearful, isolatory child. I was an only child uh, of a, a single parent and I just had that feeling of being a square pig in a rant hole and not feel, feeling quite part of. I did a lot of writing and a lot of things like that. And when I was engaging in those things, I felt okay. But a lot of the time I just, you know, had trouble making friends at school and other things like that that were going on in my life. And I distinctly remember way before I knew what alcohol was, there was a product on the market called Gripe Water that uh, used to be given to kids for sore tummies and, and wind and those sorts of things. And I... All I knew is that when my mum gave me that, it made me feel calmer. It seemed to make me feel a little bit more settled. I really liked the way it felt in my body and in my head. And I used to pretend that I had a, a sore tummy or something like that to, uh, to, uh, so she would give me more. Right. And that was my first experience of alcohol. Right, okay. Um, and so how did that progress? That progressed, I guess, the first time I drank to actually get drunk was at the age of about 13 when... There'd been a series of circumstances where my mum had remarried and so at the end of primary school, end of grade six, we moved suburbs, we moved households and I started high school at um, in a completely new environment where I had, had no friends and, and there was a little bit of uncomfortability in the household. Um, my stepsister wasn't necessarily thrilled with a stepsister and a stepmother moving into her house. And I had that feeling that I was desperate to do anything to fit in. And so one night around the age of 14, went to a party with my sister and some of her friends and uh, got drunk for the first time on ouzo and coke, a drink which I never drank again, <laughs> even not all my alcoholic drinking, I never touched that again. Um, but I stink, distinctly remember that shift in my perception of starting to feel more settled in my body, that same experience that I'd had many years ago as a, as a child and a couple of little times um, since I'm being able to drink the occasional glass of alcohol as, as a child. Um, I had that feeling of feeling more settled, of the world going from beige to full colour, of, of feeling connected to those around me and feeling like I could relax and just be part of the environment around me and was able to talk to a boy I hadn't been able to talk to for six months. And and I got very, very drunk that night and I have very, very little recollection of that night. Right. Did you, when you were drinking, did you think about your drinking or did you just drink that night? That night, I didn't. I didn't think about my drinking at all. No, I just was focused on the feeling that I felt. I felt different, and it felt better. So, did it solve your problems? 
It uh, it felt like it solved um, it solved a problem. What um, we you know one of the things we talk about what I learned when I got to got to AA was that feeling restless, irritable, and discontent, which is relieved by um, picking up a drink and feeling that sense of ease and comfort that comes with that. And so what I noticed is then when I didn't have, having had that experience of what it felt like to have alcohol in my body, then when I didn't have it in me, I felt even more different, um, more fearful, more restless, irritable, and discontent. And so it sometimes feels like I was constantly throughout my drinking just chasing that feeling of the first time and just wanting to be able to maintain that feeling, that feeling yeah. but unfortunately it's not possible to maintain that feeling without if you're an alcoholic without um life getting difficult <laughs> okay um john uh how about you um growing up what was the family like when did you get sure. exposed to yeah. alcohol um well very similar to lisa i mean I, I can one of my earliest memories i can recall is not feeling part of at kindergarten and i wasn't drinking alcohol then but yeah. i had that underlying feeling of uh, dis-ease or unease um, and very self-conscious and I grew up in a in a you know fairly very stable um, family environment of English parents out of suburb um, very hard-working a lot of discipline a lot of focus on um, achieving academically um, but I never sort of felt part of so my way of compensating for that before I discovered alcohol was to sort of overachieve um but you know i was i was if you like a smart kid who wanted to be part of the cool kids so that's a difficult place to be you know at primary school it's a difficult place to be at high school um and and i had that dilemma so um for me with that discipline around me um alcohol was limited up to the age of 18 it did come into play um occasionally from say 15 onwards um, at parties down the beach etc and what I can clearly remember is what's been spoken about is drinking for effect and getting that sense of ease and comfort losing that self-consciousness and just feeling part of so I do identify with it being a solution to my feeling of unease Yeah. yeah so did you do things that meant you could drink more often like sport or stuff like that with did you target your activities at that point? Um, I sort of towed the line and rebelled as I grew up, if that makes sense. I was the black sheep in the family who still managed to you know, win a scholarship to a private school and do very well academically and play sport. But certainly I hung out with the bad kids and you know, my two best friends got expelled from school. Right. <laughs> um, so this is the dilemma that I'm, I'm talking about. I, I'm the prefect and the school captain and my best friends are getting expelled for uh, for smoking drugs at school yeah um so yeah I, I was migrating towards environments where i could find that stuff but there was always i feel very fortunate i had that sense of discipline put around me because i think left to my own devices i would have fallen a lot quicker a lot faster to right. answer your question okay so what did your family think about your drinking episodes? Did they accept them? Or? Yeah, probably the first time the, 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 the trouble um, sort of came forward. As a, when, I left, when I left school, um, um, I, was, I was difficult. I didn't communicate well with my parents during my teens. Um, I was sort of sent overseas at 18 to straighten me out um, by myself to Europe for two months to see all the relatives and really travel around, and that's... Yeah. 
yeah, that was really a license to drink as I wanted to drink, and and I took that license. And you know, there was one event in particular uh, where I visited a, a, a very old um, relationship of my my father's, drank to excess, and was horribly unwell and sick the whole next day, and that got reported back right. how I'd embarrassed her. So, right. you know, th- that. That at the age of seventeen, eighteen was the first incident where my drinking sort of did become a negative factor. Yeah. Okay, right. Um, so, Lisa, with you starting to drink a little bit more on your own, mm. that must have caused issues with your family. With my family, as as a teenager, yes. Yeah. I guess it sounds a little bit stereotypical. But I honestly felt that my family didn't understand me. They didn't love me. They didn't get me, um, and. So my, my family and authority figures, teachers, other people around me, I can look back now and see them shaking their head in amazement. I had all this amazing potential, yeah. but I wasn't able to fill that, fulfil that potential because I felt so misunderstood. Um, but I felt better when I drank alcohol. I was just being very rebellious and seeking those opportunities to hang out those people, hang out with those people where I could do things I wanted to do and, and, and drink and, and engage in other activities where I felt like I was with people who um, got me. <laughs> Understood, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so there was a difficult period where my stepfather actually unfortunately very suddenly passed away after he and my mother had only been married for about four years. And so it was a very difficult household with my mother who was who was all of a sudden grieving, my stepsister who was grieving, um, myself grieving to an you know, extent as well, but really just being quite crazy in my behaviour and in my thinking. And it escalated in me moving out of home when I was about 16 and going to live with my paternal grandmother, who'd been one of my greatest sources of support, if you like, my whole childhood. I spent a lot of time in my childhood yep. with, um, with my nana. And... So I proceeded to leave school, get a full-time job and and hang out with people who would – I could drink where I could drink, go and go into to bars underage and, and hang out with adults who could buy me alcohol and, and started living an adult drinking lifestyle right. at a very young age. Right, okay. I guess. Um, so what sort of work were you doing? Were you doing very – very easy work or I was always doing it I started in reception administration customer service always gravitated to those sorts of jobs yeah. I wanted to be a journal I'd wanted to be a writer and alcoholism actually I guess early alcoholism robbed me of, of some of that I went off on a different a different trajectory and so I was able to to hold job hold down jobs and do very well at times in those first few years of, of my drinking but the, they weren't particularly onerous jobs so there were things I could get away with it I may not have been able to get away with yeah um in other in other professions I guess my choices of jobs suited um my progressing alcoholism yeah so uh, you mentioned that you you could drink with older people so how did that friendship sort of work out in real terms what was your life like as a young as a teenager with older people and drinking um it was just it was just chaotic yeah. It was chaotic. They weren't people I necessarily saw. Um, you hang out with people I didn't, wouldn't necessarily have hung out with under other circumstances. And and my my poor gr- grandmother didn't know what was going on. Her sweet little um, <laughs> teenager had had turned into somebody that was getting picked up by boys at you know eleven o'clock at night. You know, picked up by men yeah. um, at you know eleven o'clock at night to to go out drinking or go out and and do things. And I treated her with the same disrespect, I guess, what I had my mother for quite some time because I was just doing what I felt I needed to do to feel okay. And it felt it felt normal. 
I look back now and realise I put myself in a position where the abnormal kind of felt felt normal. normal. Yeah. And my what put a break on my drinking for a little while was I did when I was seventeen. I met a twenty six year old man who ended up being the father of my first child, who I had when I was nearly nineteen, and. So the next two and a half years after that, when he was young, um, when I was pregnant and he was young, there wasn't a lot of drinking. But okay. there was a sense of di- great, greater sense of disease in that period where I wasn't able to drink the way I wanted to. Yeah. So did your grandmother try to stop you? Uh, was she well, like a mum? <laughs> she was because the only – it's looking back now, we didn't get a chance to um, very somewhat regretfully – that I had to work through. So when I, I got sober in AA, she passed away before I got sober. And oh. so there's a lot of things that we actually never never got to resolve. actually um, talk about or, or resolve. But her her husband, my grandfather, had been the, the known alcoholic in the family. He was the old man who sat out in the shed or in the land room with his, his brown bottle, um, yeah. brown paper bag and a bottle all day. And, yeah. and yeah, her response was you know, she really tried to stop me, but she she couldn't. You know, no. I guess you know she couldn't control the uncontrollable anymore that I could control the uncontrollable in yeah. me, and and you know she was a funny woman. Like I'd come home, she'd lose her temper, and I'd left in my bedroom very messy all the time because I had other things to worry about. And I'd come home, and all of my clothes and all of my possessions, she'd empty out all the drawers and dump them on my bed wow. in frustration, kind of like you know, it's, yeah, she, yeah, she tried. Yeah, so she didn't understand the problem. No, it's interesting. She yeah. spent her whole life with the problem, but maybe. We know, not even I knew then that I had the same problem. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Mm, yeah. 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 Um, back to you, uh, John. Um, so you've got through uni okay. So how did work start? How did work start? Well, it, it started a journey really that went for nearly 20 years until I found AA and recovery of yeah. probably workaholism and alcoholism wrestling each other <laughs> if that makes sense that's a funny, funny um, with with, with workaholism you know winning significantly in early days and 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 as i've learned alcoholism is a progressive disease um, well and truly winning out by the back end so um yeah i finished university as you mentioned i'd had free license out of home to to drink as i wanted at university i fell into i like to say i flew pretty high without a flight plan um and I did, uh, and I, f- I fell into a very lucrative career, um, but you were you were obliged to work ridiculously long hours, particularly as a junior. So, you know, it was not uncommon to be working day, night, day, night, um, 24, 48, 72-hour shifts and yeah. Saturday, Sundays. And so drinking became my reward. When there was time off, I would drink, and I would always drink for effect. Um, but for a number of years... Looking back, I believe um, I could manage my drinking or control it to the extent that it came into play in, in, in time out and didn't get in the way of the working. There was other areas of my life already were unmanageable, particularly around relationships. Um, and I guess my pattern was um, and, and my issues around drinking were not so much that I got into trouble when I picked up a drink, but detoxing off a binge or things like that, I, depression would start to come into play and... Um, I, you know, and that became a, a more increasing factor as my alcoholism progressed. Yeah. So, I think you mentioned also before uh, about other things like gambling. So, what yeah. part did that play in in your life? Yeah, gambling um, was um, 
uh, sort of an, an, an on and off occurrence. Um, and I, I had to look honestly and genuinely overall, at, it was particularly at the back end of my drinking. You know, gambling in itself, I know um, we're talking alcohol, can take s- several forms. And I was gambling on the stock market as well. Um, yeah. I wasn't investing, I was gambling. Um, but certainly what I found, and particularly when we stepped forward, um, by the latter end of my drinking, I was combining the two. And um, even um, interestingly, when I put down um, alcohol, finally, but didn't find true recovery program, I went to gambling as my coping mechanism. So, you know, if I've got any lesson in my experience, it's like I need to substitute it, you know, alcoholism or addiction with a program or I tend to look and try and find another addictive behaviour to compensate. Right. Okay. And And what about your depression? Did that... Was that an underlying factor all your life? Do you yeah. Think? yeah, yeah, really good question. Um, really good question. Is it cause or effect? And 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 there's always the argument and how much of it relates just to the alcohol. Or all I can say from my experience is I, I believe it's been an underlying factor. I believe it was it was there in episodes before I discovered alcohol, and it's certainly been a major factor. I've had I, I haven't had a drink for over ten years now, but it's been a major factor. I've had to deal with manage. And, um, you know, in those 10 years of recovery. So I like to, uh, you know, know, the the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about alcohol being a symptom and we have to get down to cause and effect from from my personal experience. um, I have to free myself of the active addiction and then I have to deal with the depression, the anxiety and the underlying cause and effect. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. You're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Podcasts of Living Free Show are available at 3cr.org.au forward slash living free and also on iTunes. Uh, If you have a question or comment about the show, you can call the station on 9419 8377 or send us an email at 3 free at gmail.com or on Facebook at Three CR Living Free, and we're also on Twitter at Three CR Living Free. Uh, the Three CR Radiothon was on last week, and Living Free managed to exceed our target of one thousand dollars by around about four hundred dollars, which was fantastic. So your financial uh, support keeps Living Free and Three CR on the air for another year. So a big thank you to you. Uh, we've got a few more donations, which I shall read out from last week, uh, since last week. Um, Andrew from Carnegie, $100. Uh, Ken from Clifton Hill, $50. Uh, Jeff from Mont Albert, $50. Drew, $20. David, $40. Yvonne, $50. And Christine, $20. Thank you very much. I think we've got a little applause button here somewhere. So that's great. So it means we've exceeded our target by nearly 50%, which is fantastic. Uh, so the 3CR Radiothon theme this year was Fight for Your Mic, and that pretty much sums up Living Free. We're all about sharing personal recovery stories of alcoholics, gamblers, food and drug addicts and their families. Remember, your support keeps our message of hope on the airwaves. Uh, here's a brief announcement about donating. 
you wondering how to pay your donation? You can pay online by going to 3cr.org.au or call us on 94198377. You can also visit us in person at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy and pay by cash, cheque or EFTPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, Radio for Change. So I'm talking to uh, Lisa and John. Uh, they're members of Alcoholics Anonymous and they're sharing their recovery experience with us. Um, so, Lisa, single parent at 19, things must have been difficult. Yes, yeah, yeah. I guess, as I alluded to before, the, the first couple, for the first two and a half years or so of, of, um, of my, my son's life, there wasn't a lot of drinking. I wasn't able to drink though I wanted to in what was quite a controlling uh, relationship and quite a dysfunctional relationship. Um, when I left that relationship, that was when my drinking started to, to progress. Um, I guess in some ways put myself, tried to put myself back on the party, saying that I'd been on a few years ago every second weekend when my son was at his dad's place. So then it um, gradually escalated from partying all weekend every second weekend to starting on the Friday to going into the Sunday and, and it progressed progressed from there. So um, my drinking became more frequent and I needed to drink more to get the same effect and problems were starting to materialise in areas of my life because I had a focus on, on drinking and just feeling okay as opposed to moving forward in areas of my life or finding better tools and ways of growing up and 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 moving forward. So uh, where, you know, what I can't forget about is where alcoholism took me as a parent is into some of those situations where I became someone I thought I never would be. I became yep. someone that would leave my child with the next door neighbor's friend who I didn't really know because I had an opportunity to hang out with that person and, and drink and, and it was all about trying to normalize my drinking during that phase too so I put myself in situations oh if I can get people to go you know go out for dinner with me and drink with me or if I can create situations where I felt my drinking was normal instead of abnormal then that would help me continue to drink and so I put myself in some pretty pretty difficult situations and 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 my son in some Pretty difficult situations, I'm sorry to say, but that's that's where it took me. Yeah. So, what did your ex partner think of your drinking? Uh, my well, my ex partner wasn't exposed to my drinking a lot. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it really took off. But uh, look, it's you know we're attracted to to certain people, and I haven't seen him for many, many, many years, and neither has my son has neither seen him for many, many, many years. Mm. It's possible that we suffer from the. The same condition. I can't say that yeah. for certainty. Only he can say that. But um, you know, our relationship was, you know, from a distance, pretty fractious during those years. And then often be arguments on a Sunday on who was going to pick my son up or who was going to drive in home because I think we're both in our separate okay. suburbs, okay. <laughs> wanting to drink and feeling resentful <laughs> if we had if we thought we might have to drive and had to delay the the. Yeah, but that's the sort of unman- unmanageability that comes up is I have to get my son from another suburb, yeah. but I really want to drink and I don't know if I can not drink until after that time. Yeah. You know, that's a, just an example of, re- of how harsh, it manifests on a daily basis. Yeah, harsh reality, yeah. 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 Um, so what about work then? Does This is obviously going to start impacting your work 
Yeah. 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 So the last four and a half years of my drinking, I was in the same job, and that that job sort of characterised the progression of the of my drinking in terms of I had a promising start in that job and a couple of like promotions and st- steps up and people could see my potential in in that role and what I could do in that organisation. But then my drinking progressed, my need to drink more often progressed. I started suffering panic attacks and anxiety attacks, which I started drinking more to try and cope with the anxiety, but the drinking and the anxiety were all starting to impact on my work and um, how I was able to function on a day-to-day basis. And in the last couple of years of that job, I started getting demoted. I started right. going the other way. And so uh, just before Christmas in 2001, I was advised I was coming back to a further demoted position after Christmas and that I was going to be coming back to a position working full-time in the warehouse. And this is someone who had almost been customer service manager yeah. about a year before that. Um, and I was filled with you know, resentment, fear, self-pity, all of that sort of stuff that comes up. And I spent those two weeks pretty much at home drinking, drinking in self-pity. Um, I'd also just found out I was going to lose my licence because I'd been pulled over for drink driving for the first time in my life. And so a whole series of events started um, started crowding in mm. and every area, of my, every area of my life I always felt like I was being backed, in, backed into a corner and no matter what I tried, um, it wasn't working because I had started trying to control my drinking the last couple of years of my drinking when my anxiety got really bad and, and I had gone to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous a couple of years before I got drinking, but I wasn't yet ready um, to stop at that time. And and so I walked away thinking, I've got this. And those next couple of years was when um, every era of my life got really awful because that's when I really started trying to control it or to stop and started to really realise that that I couldn't do that no matter what I tried. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Um, John, you've become a reasonably high flyer so how, how does life progress working being a workaholic and an alcoholic um, how do you manage uh, well you don't <laughs> uh, in, in, in simple terms um, I, I truly believe if you're afflicted by this disease of alcoholism or addiction um, until you find recovery and, and really abstain completely um, the, uh, the the progression is, is downwards and that was certainly my story um you know, I kept chasing sort of new highs and I chased adrenaline and, and um, I, I took time off work um, in my late 20s with a girlfriend at the time and we unfortunately had an accident overseas in which she was killed and, and I, was, I was with her at the time and, and I was uh, sort of, should have, should have been killed at that stage too. I was saved by a miracle and that was a progression in my disease. It certainly didn't cause my alcoholism but um, it was a progression. I came back... And my disease, when I look back on it now, really started to kick in. As a, as a male Australian, um, I didn't seek help for that trauma. Um, you know, if, if, if I've learned anything from recovery, there's strength in vulnerability and there's strength in, in seeking help. And, and I don't shy away from that now. But back then, that was the last thing for me to do. It was really coping mechanisms were to demonstrate that I could get on with life. I moved to Sydney, I, I worked, I drank, and, and the, the drinking took a step change. But, you know, my career also started to plateau out and the depression started to become more of a factor. And, you know, towards the latter end of it, there was more time off for, you know, the depression, etc. And the, and the drinking got closer and closer together. So, 
Um, latter stage of my drinking that got me into recovery, um, I got married um, in my mid-30s um, because I wanted responsibility. But um, looking back, I drank more when I got married because I wasn't equipped for that responsibility. Yeah, having somebody really close. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, um, I've really come to understand through recovery that um, relationship issues are very much core to my alcoholism and I have to work very, very hard on relationship issues to have healthy relationships. Um, we had a son and I thought that would fix me and I drank more. Yeah. yeah so, um, you know, by, by my late 30s, um, I was um, in a pretty bad way. Um, my wife was starting to have to take me. I tended to drink a lot during the week when I should have been working um, and then try and detox on the weekend. And it was not uncommon that she'd have to take me to, you know, to casualty on a Saturday night. As I'm detoxing, I'm depressed. I have to go and see the, the specialist teams um, in, in deep depression. And that um, became a little bit more frequent towards the end. So, so you also had another friend who was killed. Yeah, I did. Um, after my, my partner passed away, I... Look, I lived in multiple worlds, and uh, and I had I lived in corporate land, but I had hippie friends, and I had a best friend who was actually had moved from corporate into hippie land, and he was possibly one of me. But um, we went out one night. Um, I went home because I was working. He went on to binge to drink heavily, um, and he got hit by a tram and and, and killed. So. Mm. You know, there was an example of what I've really learned through my recovery and working with a lot of alcoholics is, you know, alcohol can kill sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And this was an example of rolling the dice one too many times. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, obviously, if you're drinking more, then work's going to become more problematic. Yeah. So how did how did things work out at work? Um, yeah, I, I was pretty much sort of eased out of a job after 16, 17 years at a fairly high level. Um, and I went into another job um, and eased out of that after 18 months. So having held a job and progressed from a graduate to a sort of director in a company over a 15-year period, um, the progression of my disease is illustrated by really, you know, that two or three years then. Um, it was at that stage that, um, you know, I was willing to sort of seek help for the first time. Um, I was really fortunate to be married to the daughter of an alcoholic who yep. understood this disease. Yep. So it was really only through having her placed in my part that I knew where to go for help. Otherwise, I don't know if I would have sought that help even then. Okay. Um, so, Lisa, um, as, your, as your job sort of wound, down, wound, mm. wound you down... Um, so what was it, how did it feel, you know, being a single parent and having a child and losing your, you know, getting your job progressively made more difficult as for, from your perspective? So it must have been a huge load on you. Yeah, yeah. In that, um, in that, that period of time, it really, it felt like that treadmill or that hamster wheel that I just, I just couldn't get off. You know, I started, I didn't get to the stage uh, like John of actually going to uh, going to rehab or in, into into hospitals and that sort of thing. But I had started, um, I was going to, I was actually being quite honest with my doctor about how much I was drinking, um, but I wasn't actually suggested me to, to go to AA or, or to, to try AA in, in that time. I did start to, for the anxiety, various types of medication for anxiety, various psychologists, 
meditation retreats. I tried lots and lots of different things to try and fix what I thought were all of the problems in my in my life, which were the reasons that I needed to continue to drink, not understanding that it was the drinking that was precipitating a lot of the other problems. Yeah. Um, so the my world got very small and pretty unhappy and pretty chaotic and manageable. Um, relationships have been mentioned and I wasn't able to hold down a long-term relationship. It would either be characterised by very dramatic, chaotic relationships with people who weren't very well and I guess we used to feed off of those behaviours and, and that sort of thing in, in each other and, and it just wouldn't stick or something would start with somebody with a, a healthy person um, but I wouldn't be able to maintain that relationship because I wasn't a healthy person. No. You know? yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it was wrong with me but I wasn't a healthy person, you know, and I'd eventually, you know, either be acting crazy or drinking or something, you know, along the lines in between those in between those two spectrums. And, and I remember a distinct point in that period when I'd um, – was having daily a relationship ended and I was on having daily panic attacks at that point. I was really I, I kind of had a bit of a nervous breakdown around that around that time. As in, I had a panic attack that lasted felt like it lasted for about three months. Wow. Um, I was just like yeah. I couldn't get out of it, and it was you know, I was going doing a lot of reiki and a lot of treatments and a, a lot of just trying to get through each day, and and not really sleeping, insomnia, and a whole lot of things going on, and and. You know, an example of where alcoholism took me is I remember being put on one type of medication and being told, you can't drink on this. And initially thinking, this might be it, you know, I can't drink on this, so maybe I'll be able to stop, maybe I'll be able to stop drinking. And I think it was 48 hours later, I remember sitting at the kitchen table, having taken a tablet, looking at a glass of alcohol going... I'm just going to try and being terrified, <laughs> terrified of what might possibly happen, but I was powerless yeah. not to do it. Yeah. And I had that drink and nothing terrible happened. And here's me thought that life was going so well, I realised I could be on the medication to control my anxiety and I could, and I could drink, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's if that's not insanity, yep. I don't know what is. Yeah, okay. Uh, you're listening to Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. I'm talking with Lisa and John about recovery from alcoholism. Uh, so, Lisa, you had the warehouse warehouse issue. Mm-hmm. Um, a demotion wasn't something very attractive to come back to after Christmas, I'm sure. No, <laughs> so definitely not. How'd that progress? That progressed. So uh, that was the yeah. That was ninth of January two thousand and two. I went into that job and and I lasted about two hours and. It just felt like everything had crowded in on me. You know, I'd lost my license. I'd been demoted. I'd spent a very isolatory two weeks sitting at home, sitting at home pretty much just drinking and not doing much else, feeling very sorry for myself. Um, and I felt, I so said I didn't end up going to a rehab or anything, but what I, I describe is I felt like I had a lucker band inside of me that was getting wound tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. Yep. And it was close to snapping and I didn't know what was going to happen when it snapped, but I knew it was going to be really bad yep. and I was really scared. And I'd had a few sessions. I'd, I'd moved house about four months before I got sober and that was going to be, that was the most recent geographical, geographical. <laughs> you know, I won't need to, you know, I'm going to move suburbs in with this great, you know, this, this great friend and new suburb, fresh start, something like that. I won't need to drink. And I lasted about six weeks and then I started stealing my friend's alcohol and topping it up the next day and then gradually started buying my, my own alcohol again and, and was off and running. So I was starting to – I went to see a DNA counsellor so I was really starting to get to that point of I really can't stop. 
that I really can't do this and started to accept more that alcohol was actually the problem, not everything else. And that denial was being, you know, finally smashed through. And this drug and alcohol counsellor I saw didn't actually believe in AA. Um, he believed that it, drinking was a learned behaviour and that I could relearn that behaviour. And he put me on a controlled drinking program. So that was really the, the <laughs> beginning of the beginning of the end of end end when um, it was a, a big gift actually as part of my rock bottom that when he said instead of having three bottles of wine tonight, you can have two and a half. And I could not do it and realised as soon as I'd had that first drink, all bets were off, um, that really I started to hit that point of desperation. And and so I went back into work on on that day and lasted about two hours and I just walked into the office. I said, I can't do this. And I lied to my mother because I was absolutely broke. I lied to my mother so she'd transfer $20 into my bank account. I forget what I told her it was for, probably petrol, (laughs) Um, you know, lying, shitting, alcoholic and... And I bought a packet of cigarettes and a really cheap, nasty cask of red from memory. And I went home and had a couple of drinks and called this counsellor and quite hysterical. And he said, I I don't really know how to help you. And I just felt like I was done. And I ended up calling a family member. It was was holidays and my son was at my auntie's house, actually. I ended up calling her and, and saying, I need help. And her and my mum came over, so it was a big kind of dramatic family intervention, yeah. if you like. And, and and I found myself saying, you know, I'm going to go to a meeting of AA tomorrow because I'd been to that meeting a couple of years before and I wasn't ready to hear the message, but I did hear something. You yeah. know, I wasn't really taken on board. And, and so I found myself saying, I'm going go to go to AA tomorrow. And, and I had a moment of clarity that day where before they left the house, they said, do you have any alcohol in the house? And I did. And part of me just wanted to go, you know what? maybe I can do it. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll just drink today and, and maybe tomorrow I'll be able to stop. And But part of me knew that in in a way I hadn't known before that that wasn't true, that I wasn't going to be able to stop and that I wanted things to be different. And so I handed over the alcohol in the house and I went to bed relatively sober that night for the first night in a in a very, very long time. Wow. And strange feeling. Yeah, <laughs> really strange feeling, really strange feeling. And, and yeah, and went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous the next day to with a very, very different attitude than I had had at that, that very first meeting when I still thought I was different or special. Right, okay. Um, so, John, you're in hospital after trying to detox, help from your wife to get mm. to get sober. Mm. So how did, how did the detox go? Well, that was a really interesting experience. So I'm, I'm in, I've gone to a four-week rehab. It's day one. And I'm trying to check out because I'm, I don't belong there. Um, there's a lot of denial in alcoholism and I still had a lot of it in me. Um, and um, I, I remember going up to the counsellor um, at reception who, once again, someone was put in my way. He was a 30-year sober member of AA and he knew exactly how to relate to another alcoholic. Yeah. And I said, I don't belong here. I'm out of here. He said, there's the door. Off you go. Yeah. And I said, stuff for you. I'll stay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, and that was the start of my journey. And, yeah. you know, at that stage, if you had said you can't go, I probably would have left and I wouldn't be here today. Um, so I did my four weeks. I um, There was 12-step meetings at that rehab. I'd, I'd also been to one 18 months earlier, um, one meeting 18 months earlier. Yeah. But... Um, and I'd stayed sober for six months after that, then picked up one drink on some success in life and then progressively gone downhill till I went to that rehab. So I did the rehab, I did the four weeks, I came out with a belief that 
if I put down the drink, I can fix up all my problems and then, you know, I should be able to drink safely again. Um, Ten and a bit years later, I haven't fixed up all my problems, so I haven't picked up a drink. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, But, yeah, it took me a long, long time um, post that last drink. So I haven't had a drink now for just over ten years. Um, And I really do relate that sobriety to my membership of AA and, and, and being part of um, the AA community and the AA program. But for the first few years, I was very selective about which parts of the program I took on board. Um, I became a workaholic again. My marriage broke down at the end of year one of recovery. Um, there was a lot of illness in the family. Um, and really at um, five years sober was where I hit my real rock bottom. And it's not uncommon for people. I've had a lot of friends who have also hit their rock bottom after a period of sobriety. Um, I'd, uh, my marriage had fallen over. I'd got depression. I'd lost a, a very good job. And really at that stage, my life was saved by um, friends in the Fellowship of AA who rallied around, kept me safe, put me in hospital. And I spent three months in hospital at five and a half years sober. Um, And it was there, really, my journey of recovery really started. Before that, I was intellectualising what I'd learnt. And really, um, after that, it it sort of made the journey to the heart. And I started to realise I had to change the person who did drink um, or that person would inevitably drink again. So that was really where I started to take on more of the AA program in its completeness and and undertake that process of change. Yeah. So uh, a lot of people don't really understand much about 12-step programs. Mm. So what what aspect do you think helped you most? Yeah, really good question. I I do think there's a spiritual malady underlying this this sort of illness. Um, And so it is... is, is, implementing um, some sort of a spiritual program. It's the community of AA, it's the connection. There's a whole body of science now that's saying connection's the opposite of addiction. Um, but it's having a structure and a framework to replace the addictive behaviour. So it's having um, you know, meetings to go to, it's having a sponsor to get advice from, it's um, you know, cleaning up my side of the street, and it's helping others, you know, and, yeah. and it's all different aspects. I mean, AA is one of, you know, Bill Wilson, the founder, said there's nothing original in it. It's, it's the best piece of plagiarism <laughs> of, of every, that's embedded in every, you know, spiritual um, philosophy of weight in the world. It's just been done in a form where it's easily understandable and easily um, implemented into, into life. So to me, it's a program for living. And it teaches me how to live free of substance, uh, addiction, gambling, etc. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, So, Lisa, coming into AA, you were, um, yeah, obviously defeated coming Mm. in. So, what was the? How did it feel coming to meetings and being accepted as somebody who just had a problem? Mm. Um, Yeah, I guess coming into AA, it was. You know, I really identify with that. What's talked about is alcohol having been my worst enemy and my best friend at the same time. Because while I was still drinking, no matter how bad things got on a daily basis, no matter what was coming up as either as a result of my behaviour or just as a result of life and life on life's terms, 
I had a feeling that I could cope with things because I knew I was going to have a drink at the end of it. You know, it was that just getting through, it'll be okay, I'll have a drink when I get home or I'll have a drink when this is over. And so one of the reasons I couldn't get um, sober in all the times that I wanted to was I had no idea, I'd lost all concept of what was what was normal and what I would do if I didn't drink. And... Um, and that thought was so terrifying that I couldn't even remember what I would do if I, I didn't drink at the end of the day that I would just keep drinking. And so getting to AA and just feeling like you know everything had been robbed of me at a, a core level. My self-esteem was eroded. My you know sense of right and wrong was eroded. I'd you know my own bottoms and my own standards had kept dropping to a point where I just felt like. Um, yep. nothing, you know, I was about four weeks sober and no, actually not even that, probably a couple of weeks sober and someone invited me into their house for a cup of coffee and I remember feeling like, you don't want me in your house, you don't know what I've done, you know, and so coming into AA I started to hear, pe- hear people's experiences and starting to hear that their experience, that I wasn't that unique and that wasn't, I wasn't that different and I remember hearing people articulate things that I'd felt but I couldn't have articulated and so I got two great gifts in within my first week actually of, of being of coming going to AA meetings and, and being willing to just sit there and listen and being open to the the program that was being presented was that one was he, hearing people share very honestly and very from the heart and they could be having a really bad day and it was really at my first meeting someone um, having a really bad day and, and sharing and crying and and I looked around and she didn't seem to be being judged or ridiculed and in fact people were nodding and giving her looks of support and I had this sense of hope you know start to come up they're going wow maybe there's maybe there's something in that and then a few days later I was at a meeting and there was a woman who had was 12 years sober at that point but she'd got sober at the same age that I was at that time and she got sober when she had a child about the same age as I'd been um, as my son was at that time and she shared about how coming up to her rock bottom she had um, her son had called human services and said my mum needs help and they removed the, the her son from the home and and she's saying but I didn't but he's clothed and he's fed and he goes to school and there's food on the table and 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 she was told there's many forms of abuse and neglect and emotional emotional neglect is one of them yeah. and that was me you know yeah. that was me but then she went on to and so I really heard my problem and her, where my problem had got to and then she went on to share that she'd gone on the journey of getting sober with the help of AA and gone back to court to get custody of her son back and everything like that and every day she walked out of the court she wanted to drink and every day there was an AA member waiting for her to take her to a meeting yeah. and that's when I realized that this isn't just about sitting in these rooms it's not about sitting in these meetings talking about alcohol it's about getting a fellowship and support around me and different things to do each day like go to a meeting call somebody read someone do something mm. um you know as an alternative to having to pick up a drink you know I started to get a sense that there was a um a new way of living on yeah. offer yeah. That's what kept me coming back. Yeah, I think it's about restoring hope as well because I think most people feel it's hopeless that they, it's pointless changing because it's not going to mm. wh- whatever I do is not going to change mm. the outcome. And I think yep. uh, twelve step gives that hope. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really really good place to, to end. It, it really gives hope. Um, you know, there's there's examples walking in front of me who have gone through everything that I've been through and come out the other side. And you're part of a community, and there's hope that you know there is light on, uh, on the other side. Um, yeah. 
And um, the real strength in it is, is, is you're, you're, you're talking to people who've gone through that similar experience and, and come out the other side, and, and that creates a, an enormous sense of hope, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, uh, well, so we're heading towards, uh, towards time. So um, if, you're, if you'd like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and how they can help you, then you can phone them on 1300 222 222. Or you can go online at aa.org.au. Um, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Lisa and John for coming into the 3CR studio and sharing their Alcoholics Anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Uh, I hope you're about to join us again next week when we'll be talking about reco- recovery from drug addiction and we'll be joined by some members of Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring local and national black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. And thanks for listening to the Living Free program today.